the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Audrey Lord. As we get ready for summer, vaccine restrictions are beginning to lift. Folks are beginning to think about what it looks means or looks like to return to, big air quotes, something resembling some kind of normalcy. But in the midst of all of that, we still, particularly for folks of color, do we do not have the luxury of being able to put things aside in order to look for greener pastures or to even take the breaths that we want to take. Now, I know we all have our ways of coping and doing self-care. I'm not saying that we don't have that. But I'm getting a sense that folks are in a position of trying to move on or move beyond. This is very problematic for me, especially given that so much is continuing to happen and so many developments are continuing to happen. And it almost seems like we are having to really work to hold the things that are in front of us in front of us as people began to try to move beyond. Also seeing new and renewing calls to use the systems as they are to go along and to capitulate to the process, big air quotes again, the process. Now, we know how that process, again, big air quotes, has gone in the past. And our major changes for civil rights throughout all of our history in the United States have always come beyond the zone of comfort that so many ask agitators, again, big air quotes throughout our history, to abide by. Well, I want to remind us that Audrey Lord said it herself. The master's house cannot be dismantled by the master's tools. There has to be new thinking. There has to be something that keeps pressure on. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. So, Ms. Georgia, this week, I know I've been watching your reporting and there's a whole lot of stuff still happening that we've got to keep in front of our faces. What are the things that we need to keep in front of us as we continue to go throughout this week? Well, I think that we have to continue to center ourselves in this moment. And for those of us who are on the right side of history, uh, keep that in the forefront of your mind. It, it was uh, a, a very interesting week, I will say, with the announcement of the three uh, other former officers charged in George Floyd's death with that trial being postponed. It, it brought forth uh, the sentiment that Martin Luther King talked often about. To delay justice is injustice. And so, you know, as many people celebrated a victory for the all a guilty verdict. And of course, now the Department of Justice has launched their investigation. We still haven't had sentencing happen yet. So we're not sure exactly how that's going to go. Although, you know, the judge did say that he's considering four aggravating factors in sentencing Chauvin. He's considering the fact that there were children at the scene when George Floyd was killed. He's considering the fact that this was a group crime, that Chauvin did not do this alone and other factors as well. And so uh, Chauvin may get more time than what we saw for uh, Muhammad Noor, which was 12 years. And given the fact that Chauvin uh, does not have a prior uh, record, right, 
he was probably only facing about 12 years. But now because of those other factors being considered, the judge has grounds to uh, give him a harsher sentence. You know, you brought forward an interesting point in some of your coverage this week around what the federal investigation um, is going to be looking at versus what was allowed in the trial. Can you can you fill us in a little bit about some of those pieces? I, I think um, some of Chauvin's past uh, reports are coming to light. Well, if you follow the trial, you know that there was nothing about any previous interactions that Chauvin had admitted into evidence. In fact, uh, the judge did not allow it. He uh, tried this case and this case only. And so only evidence pertaining to uh, the arrest of George Floyd was allowed to be admitted into evidence during that trial. But now with the Department of Inve- uh, the Department of Justice launching a broader investigation, and not just on Chauvin, but on the entire Minneapolis Police Department, everything is fair game. So we've already uh, been made aware that uh, he is indicted on federal charges for violating George Floyd's constitutional rights, but he's also uh, being investigated for an interaction that he had with a 14-year-old where the Department of Justice has outlined uh, excessive force uh, being used in that instance as well. Um, I'm beginning to encounter, particularly in um, in, in religious circles, given, given that I'm in um, conversations amongst clergy as I come into my ordination in September, um, I was on a call uh, with a pastor who's working out of Alabama, and we were talking with a doctoral student um, out of Yale, um, and who's writing and doing some dis- his dissertation work on the intersection of on the ground protest and 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 just this moment from from a you know faith based tradition. And one of the questions that the the pastor in Alabama asked me specifically, he said, "How is it that you all are getting to organize um, and in our our there are things that you are getting to say and do and push that would never fly here. And, you know, I remember you, you talking about some of the differences here uh, versus, you know, your, your time in, in Atlanta uh, or in Georgia. But one of the things I thought was striking is the sense I get here is that we're having to constantly push and and add pressure um, in ways that don't feel like the, like there is movement. Um, and, and yet outside of the, of Minnesota folks are actually, are, are looking at what was happening here and feeling like there is real movement. And so I'm just curious what the sense you get, given that you're on the ground everywhere, like everywhere talking to everybody. I'm really curious to get a sense. Is is that, is the hopefulness or momentum something that you are, are encountering from folks as you encounter and you you talk to them and, and, or, or, or are they having a sense of like we're pushing and not getting anywhere? I'm trying to get a sense of what you're seeing on the ground. Well, I think it's very nuanced and it is different from the outside looking in than from the inside looking out. And so when you're not from here and you see a group of protesters and organizers and a civil rights attorney going to the home of (laughs) a county attorney, uh, uh, you know, to demand justice, that is very revolutionary and radical and probably something that a lot of other communities would not use as a strategy for change. But... It was effective for 
uh, the case of George Floyd. If you remember, Mike Freeman had not pressed charges and uh, there were actions held in front of his home. And so because there has been a history of multiple police killings in this community and there has been a core group of organizers and community leaders and members that continuously come together and find the time. You know, you hear that all the time. Like, don't you have Mm -hmm. a job? How are you guys always out here? People are prioritizing this because they want to see change. And knowing that some of these demonstrations and some of these actions have led to change. It's, it's put pressure on the people who are in power who normally could just dismiss these issues or sweep them under the rug and move on and turn the other cheek. But now they're being forced to reckon. They're being forced to face the issue. They can't ignore it. It's at their doorstep. And so from the inside looking out, you know, and, and having gone through this so many times, Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, uh, uh, Brian Quinones, uh, Jafford Smith, Cordell Handy. I mean, this community has gone through this so many times. George Floyd, Dante Wright. So does it feel like we're making change when we know the Republican House is holding up, or the Republican Senate, rather, is holding up legislation, Right. Are, are we showing up at the right doorsteps? Are we applying pressure in the right places? And so, yes, while uh, there has been, you know, two convictions now, um, there's still so many other cases, mm-hmm. right? And there's still so many people who are seated in positions of power who are resisting change, um, who are not embracing their humanity. I think a lot about the press conference that was held immediately following the verdict in the Chauvin trial that said, we're going to open up George Floyd Square. Mm. The timing, you know, it's not even the messaging, Although some people do have a, a problem with the messaging, the timing of that is just so inconsiderate to everything that people have, you know, what everybody has been through um, in the last year. So, yeah, from the inside looking out, it might feel like we're not making a lot of change. But in other communities that don't have this uh, central nucleus of organizers who are applying pressure, Uh, and focused on that as like their number one priority. Uh, From the outside looking in, we're making a lot of progress. You know, I I took my daughter to um, get her iPad replaced. We had, uh, and we had to take it to Central High School. And so this is just today. We we got out of the parking lot. We walked in and I pointed to the school and I said, Tadia, you know, this is the school you're going to be going to because this is the school that I went to, that my wife went to, that uh, that my parents went to. And so, um, shoot, my, my father was in steel drum class with Stokely from Mint Condition. Like, like that's, that's, that's this, this, this the place you're going. And she looked around and she saw and looked up and she saw that there were signs with Philando's face on there. Um, and so we walk into the basement. I showed her one of my old lockers. I got to, you know, because I know folks who still work there. So they let me, you know, look look a little bit and get, check out my locker, checked out the recording studio. Um, but as we are walking out, she looks forward and she she looks around and she said, you know, what what was it like to go to school with Philando? And I, you know, I told stories and things like that. And she asked me the question. She said, is 
is it going to be like this when I get old enough in high school? And and it was weird because it I don't know that she asked the question for an answer. I think I think she caught herself thinking outwardly. But there's that looming question about is is this going to be different? And and I'm continuing uh, to be reminded that in all the developments that happen and the and the pressure that has to keep be kept up, the fact that we have to have church services outside of the house of our our county attorneys just just to. To, to let them know we're watching, which I thought was absolutely genius. I mean, they held a legit church service outside <laughs> of uh, the Washington County Attorney's um, uh, uh, house. But that question they of They prayed will, for the Lord to soften his heart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, we're met by neighbors who used racial epithets um, and who work in our, our criminal justice system, continuing to expose these racial mental models that are, that are, that are held by people who are, who are, are, are quote unquote, overseeing us at our most vulnerable. So um, that question struck me. And, and, and I think um, it's, it's really awesome that we have the guests that we have today in Mr. In brother PJ Hill, um, because we are in a space of having to, to talk about how we keep up the pressure how we keep up the pressure. And, and I think, um, and I'm excited to to see what the possibilities are, but it is still wearing on me <laughs> that I can't answer my daughter's question affirmatively because we still have to fight just to, to, to show that what we all saw in the video, what we all saw as witnesses, that it takes all of that just to get some movement. And so that's the question that's looming on my mind as we bring in our guest. Brother P.J. Hill is uh, a vice president of the NAACP, uh, a community servant. Um, I've seen this brother in many different places as we organize um, to try to keep the pressure up. And so uh, I got to welcome you, Brother P.J. Hill. Why don't you come in and tell us a little bit about yourself and and what's going through your mind as you hear uh, me and Ms. Georgia kept, catch up about the week and her coverage uh, of this particular important moment. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you and Georgia for having me on. Um, this is an amazing opportunity to use this platform um, to really share what's going on from a ground level. And you see most news stations don't um, cover from people who are on the real ground and from an authentic point of view. So I'm grateful to be able to uh, be a part of this. Um, what goes through my mind is the story that you talk about with your daughter and how do you answer those questions? So I got a similar story. I was with my daughter yesterday. Um, looking through some apartment buildings, some different units. Um, one was about a 25 unit, another one was a 30 unit. And I brought my daughter with me just, you know, cause seeing is believing, want to inspire her that she can really change the narrative and create generational wealth. And every person who we went through from the realtor to the owners were, uh, nobody who looked like us. They didn't represent the community. And when we walked out of the last building, we got in the car. She said, dad, you're right. You know, Nobody looks like us in this field. We don't own none of this. And I was like, dang. It, I mean, for a 13-year-old to recognize that, that, you know, it's been all of these years and still not much has changed. It, it, it's powerful. So, I mean, to your daughter, um, how do we move the ball forward? You know, how do we uh, keep applying pressure to really change the narrative for our kids? Because we all have them. And I think that is a big driving force for not only myself, but I can only imagine you two as well, too really keep pressing because, you know, that could be our kids out there getting discriminated against. That could be our kids um, getting jacked up into the system. So how do we change that? So that that's how I'm feeling as you guys start to talk about that. It really hits home. 
And I'm glad that you pointed that out, you know, even looking at wealth disparities in Minnesota. It's almost like there's two Minnesotas, mm-hmm. one for white Minnesotans and one for black Minnesotans. And I know people always feel like I'm going off the deep end when I start talking about the huge disparities that we have here in Minnesota. But I feel like if we're having a conversation about George Floyd and how we got here, how we got to this moment, we have to consider those huge disparities. Uh, Because people were fed up with the quality of life that they have in contrast to their white counterparts. And that breaks breaks down from home ownership to education to the healthcare system. System. I mean, you name it, every facet of life, every industry, we're plagued with, with these huge gaps where for some reason, the same assets and amenities can't perform for us in the same way that they do for our white neighbors and friends and colleagues. And so I always, especially people who, again, on the outside uh, looking in, they need to know that right before George Floyd was killed, there was this article that came out, Minnesota's the fourth worst place for black people to live. What does that look like every day to wake up and be in an environment where you know the soil's not cultivated for you to grow and for you to prosper and for you to uh, bear fruit, right? And so and now here we are on the other side of it and, and uh, you know, like both of you guys have pointed out, trying to find that uh, tenacity to keep pressing forward. Uh, PJ, you have in some sense kind of reinvented yourself from uh, where you were, uh, you know, previously in, in your career and having a lot of success as an athlete to now really focusing on um, wealth, specifically in, in the black community. Can you talk about how you found the tenacity to like make a pivot like that? Because I think that a lot of us could learn uh, a lot from, from your insight in, in that way. Yes. I mean, that's an absolutely phenomenal question. For me, I, I see that a lot of these issues that we have in society stem from the economic inequalities that lie within society and that the systems have created. So I think a big thing for me when I was transitioning from professional basketball, the reason why I got into finance is I wanted to be able to teach people about financial literacy and then teach them how to grow wealth so I can liberate our people economically. I think if we're liberated from the system, then we can be self-sustaining as a community. And then we start to have say. And that starts with like home ownership. That starts with like being able to not only save, but uh, save to invest. So then you can start to become an owner of things in your community. And I think that was very important for me. Um, prior to George Floyd, um, I wasn't never really involved in the social justice movement. But after that, you know, after I witnessed that slow nine minute murder of a man, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, rich, poor, man, woman, something inside of all of us broke and we said enough is enough. So I said, how do I use my gifts and my talents for people and to be able to teach financial literacy, to teach people about the stock market, to teach people about generational wealth, about insurance, so that every generation, our people is not starting from ground zero. That way we can start to layer on and really change the narrative in our community and take ownership. There's there's a through line to uh, a conversation that that Miss um, Georgia brought forward in a previous recording, um, centered around that that how you know 
there's working within and through systems, but then there's working to detach ourselves from dependency on systems that repeatedly show us that they don't work for us. There's something really compelling as you talk about uh, the you know detaching, um, detaching from dependency from a, from a financial standpoint, an economic standpoint. You know, um, I think about the um, I, th- I think about what it takes for us to marshal our own our own resource. Right when we marshal our own resource, then. Um, and and take our money, right? I think about the power that it that it that it comes not just from a stance of boycott, which has been beaten into us over and over and over again throughout our history. That you know, boycott, boycott, boycott. Um, but we miss the other narrative there, and that is you know owning your own, you know, uh, and having then therefore control over all the things that go around it. You know, um, I'm curious where have you where do you see some of the um, the most compelling levers in terms of keeping pressure. On from a financial standpoint that we can access as a community? Uh, I think the, the number one is, is home ownership um, and, and owning, you know, the, the properties in our communities. So um, I want to say congratulations to Georgia um, being selected to be a part of the list um, twins, uh, minority developers program, because I Thank think you. that right there starts to change the narrative. If our people own these buildings, then we can put minorities to do build outs in these buildings. Then we can put minority small businesses in there. And then the money starts to be able to change hands between us five and six times. And I think then that's how you create a culture where we are investing in each other. And I think that's what it takes. Like that's the, the, the beginning of it. And then as we start to do that, how do we educate our kids? Because they're not taught this in school. And it's for a reason. It's for a reason. So how do we teach them at a young age about um, save a little, spend a little, give a little? Just simple principles about life that will change them forever. So Georgia and PJ were both accepted into the LISC, it's that, which means Local Initiative Support Corporation. Um, uh, they're developers of Color Capacity Building Initiative, which is a whole new cohort. Oh yeah, I was. I'm, I'm right in with her. I'm trailing the play. She's first, and I'm she's second. But yeah, I got in as well. And here's the projects I'm doing because I've been on 38 Chicago. I grew up there. I know that like in order for us to really change the narrative and a win for the community, it's not like the mayor saying just opening. We need to have like so. I bought the the biggest building next to the uh, speedway, the brick building, mm. which is six units. And I plan to like put different like I got a. Celebrity chef who's going to go in there, a black one, Imani Jackson, a couple other things that's going to go in there. Yeah, she's going to, we're going to build her a restaurant too. What? Yeah. So we're doing oh. a whole build out for a restaurant for her. It's going to be crazy. And so, you know, just getting into that. And then I know one thing that our people really struggle with is affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So getting into this development space, a lot of these people that like Stu Ackerberg, Ken Sherman, the Wellingtons, I know these people from business. I don't know them as being a member of the community. So mm-hmm. I understand how they think. So right. what they would rather do is build these new developments and take a fine rather than make part of their um, housing affordable housing. So I said, cool, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need y'all. We'll do it ourselves. So I bought an apartment building on uh, Lake and uh, 31st and Cedar, 30 units. I'm looking at one on 34th and Park, that's 27 units. And um, I just looked at one yesterday that was 90 units, right? The brownstones behind Powderhorn. 
So I'm going to do them and do all affordable housing. And here's my plan, what I'm going to do. When I get these buildings, I'm going to uh, use each community, like the building per se, and I'm going to go around to each residence and talk about what can I do to help your kids take another step forward, like as far as education, as far as anything, and use them building as like my study and my community to be able to really make a difference in those 30 families' lives. And that's what I plan to do. So then by the time they move out of there, they'll be ready for set up for job creation, for different things for their kids. You know, I love that because it it shows like we have the solutions, right? We we can be the change that we want to see. And it requires a it, it requires a lot of hard work, but you've connected to the resources and you have the vision and you're pulling in all the right pieces uh, to make the puzzle fit. So yeah, I love what you're doing and uh, everybody knows what I'm doing in terms of uh, the development. I can only do one development <laughs> at a time because I got so much other stuff happening. I'm actually going to step away. I'm on four month leave from my job because they told me to go and just be you. Go make these projects go. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. No, so the development is uh, my husband, he owns a boxing gym. He is a, mm-hmm. a former professional boxer. He's fought on ESPN and trained with Mayweather's dad. And a lot of uh, young uh, men and women uh, are drawn to him because of his experiences as a professional athlete. And so while he's teaching the fundamentals of boxing and the techniques and, you know, getting guys ready to turn pro, oftentimes he's not just a boxing coach. Mm-hmm. He's a life coach. And so we had to realize that um, his ability to be a mentor was threatened during COVID when we had to shut down because we still had to pay rent mm-hmm. for our space. And um, there was some predatory lending that followed to try and alleviate um, the gap of not having income, but still having all of these expenses. And so I I don't know, I just flipped and took my ability to tell stories, to start telling his stories mm-hmm. to funders. And, um, you know, telling his story resulted in us raising enough money to uh, purchase wow. a building. There is a huge need for uh, renovation in order for the safe, uh, the space to be transitioned into a boxing gym. And so, yeah, so now we're undergoing this massive renovation in this building, um, but to secure a permanent space for his business, Mm -hmm. his mentorship, um, to secure a safe space for the youth Mm -hmm. in our community to call home and uh, for our our children to be able to own something even when we're not here. You know, as business owners, both of us now are fully self-employed. And so we had to reassess our 401k, right? Uh, In 25 years, if he continues to serve the community how he does and I continue to serve the community how I do. Neither one of us are getting rich off of our our professions, but we refuse to quit on it. And so if we can um, accumulate equity um, by paying taxes every year in this building or whatever, then now we can either rent it out when we need to retire or we can sell it. Like the, there's a lot of mm-hmm. different options. So for us, uh, that's kind of the direction we're going. Um, after I finish that project, I do want to take on a second development, which would be, of course, a media um, center or some type of a studio uh, so that there can be a more permanent place for me to leave a legacy. You're listening to Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia. 
with guest PJ Hill, created and supported by Ampers, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit racialreckoningmn.org. As we have this conversation, I can't help but reflect, like, for me, uh, I couldn't, my family couldn't really teach me about money because they didn't have money. Like, we grew up on food stamps. Mm -hmm. And so if you're coming from a household of poverty, uh, it's very, very difficult to shed that poverty mindset because that's all you know. Uh, Do you work with people who are transitioning um, you know, from, I guess, almost like one tax bracket to another. And, because I know that there are a lot, especially when you look at the uh, demographics here in Minnesota, there are a lot of uh, black families who are living pay- paycheck to paycheck. And so trying to embrace that save a little, spend a little, uh, give a little can be hard. It's hard to save money when you don't have a lot of extra money. No, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. And I think um, it has been so ingrained in our people, and this is something that we're fighting all the time. We rather um, buy things that symbolize wealth instead of actually having wealth. So we buy things like Louis Gucci, nothing wrong with them because I, I love Louis Vuitton, but it symbolizes wealth because we look at white folks and we say, that's what they got. They drive Mercedes. They drive these things, but nobody can see your bank account. So nobody can see that image. So fighting against how to change people's mind in their relationship with money. And so even if you have a little bit of money, it's the principle that you have to start off with. So, okay. If you only have $10, how do I put $1 away? How do I put $1 away for something in the future? And that's why it's easier to start with kids, you know, in, in this. And I do a lot with the churches and just teaching our people because they, they do give ties. We'll figure out how to raise money when somebody dies in our family. So how do we take those principles and use them to start saving a little bit? Buy insurance because somebody in your family is going to die. How do we leverage that? Everybody's got to die. So just teaching them simple things. And once I teach those, I think people's, the light bulb goes in their head like, "Mm." or teach them about what banks do. Banks take your money and by law, they can lend 90% of it out. So if they're paying you a 1% on your money and then they go take your money and lend it out uh, for a car loan and charge somebody 10%, that 9% difference, which is called the float, they keep. How about you make your own float? And you learn about stocks or um, you invest in your education. The one thing that we have today um, is the Internet. It's the great equalizer. We got YouTube. We got, you know, Instagram. You can learn anything from the Internet. You know, uh, it's funny. Um, so so my family, um, they broke racially restrictive covenant in Maplewood to to they broke through there to to, to establish land and and had to keep that into the family. So, you know, and, and, and it has, it, what I grew up watching the difficulty of my grandmother just trying to keep that, um, you know, with, with some education, with, with all the folks around trying to keep it because of this notion that how dare she have it. Um, and, and, um, and that somebody like her shouldn't have all this and what is she going to do with it? And she's not using it, bro. And she's had to withstand all of that. And so it, you know, it reminds me that even in the transition spaces, there's 
uh, you know, our disparities run deep. Our disparities run deep across all income levels. This is one of the things that many folks will try. Um, and I found this in education all the time. When we start to get to causality for disparity, folks work hard to try to blame um, the folks who are receiving uh, the negative in, end of service for that disparity when not only history is involved, current practice is in, 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 inculcated, but um, our, our gaps in achievement um, or opportunity, I should say, right? They exist across all income levels. So even for affluent black folks in Minnesota, there's still a disparity with their white peers when you adjust for for, for that and compare apples to apples. And so, you know, it, it's not just... it it it. it they are much deeper than what is allowed to get explained away whenever they're talking about us. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm curious as we think about the, the structural pieces of, you know, I heard you talk about that, that, that the wealth in terms of home ownership, understanding how to tuck away to take care of your, to take your own, that these tools for just the self-sufficiency side, I'm curious about, you know, if, what are, what are, what are, what are the opportunities that we have when we make that shift to leverage power in new ways financially. Yeah, so like if you, if you you know you start owning your home and then you know I can say like this is what they do. They make information like very uh scarce. Mm-hmm. So when you have somebody who's able like me, um the vice president of Wells Fargo gave me an opportunity, took me under his wing. I didn't know nothing about finance and mm-hmm. he took me under his wing and he showed me. So then it was my duty to go tell another each one, teach one. And so then when I got that, when he taught me the game, first thing I did was win and buy my own home. And from that, from buying my own home, so I can just explain it to y'all because I'm never shy about this. I bought my first home in Robbinsdale, right on Theodore Worth Park, right there, right behind the flagpole. Mm-hmm. I paid 166 for it. I put $10,000 down, which I know may not, people may not have that, but if you're in a first time home, home buyers program, they'll, they'll be able to put that down for you. I stayed in that house for two and a half years. From there, I um made sold my house and made $115,000 cash profit. Now, one of my friends told me, man, you should do take that and go buy a duplex and then go buy a single family. So now this was the start of me now creating wealth. I actually moved into a duplex and then rented out the other half and then bought a single family home too. fixed it up, moved into my single family home and rented those two out. Now I'm starting to create income. And so now everybody, like the two people that I've had rent from me, when you rent from me, I make it a point that you'll never rent again. My goal is to try to help you get a house now. So I'm going to help you build your credit while you stay with me. And I usually give young, you know, young people an opportunity because, you know, they just really don't know. They're going to live hand to mouth, living in a nice place. And that's been my mission, just to help them. Now you go move into a duplex and that cuts down your costs. Just teaching that method right there. Mm. That autonomy, that self-control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And all I can think about is the power of like breaking generational curses, mm. you know, and, and how important it is in our community and our culture. Uh, so many of us are at that point. Uh, do you have any other advice for folks who are trying to build wealth uh, to pass down for the next generation? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the most important thing is, you know, as you start to, to to pass wealth down, teach principles because the education part is what we're missing. So like books like The Richest Man in Babylon, that's a great book to really teach simple principles about money. And then everybody in our community needs to have life insurance. We're all going to die. 
at some point. So what I did with my family is me and my sister, we both had the, you know, the luxury of being able to use basketball at the vehicle to make success and get a little bit of money. So we took out insurance policies on my mom, my dad, and all my aunties and uncles. And we got long-term term on them. And we pay into it every month. We split it between me and my couple siblings. But it's an investment. If we have to pay, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month, and if my mom or dad die or one of my aunties die, we get, you know, eight hundred thousand into our family trust, then that's how you start to change the narrative. And then I built us a family trust. And my goal is when somebody passes away, like my grandpa passed away and we got two hundred and fifty thousand into the trust. Then when somebody needs to start a business, when they get in the first time home, when they're going to college and they need some money like that to get started, now we have our own bank that we can draw from. And this is a real plan on how you become a CEO of your family and really start to change the narrative. That's powerful. Uh, That is extremely powerful. Our ability to gather together, you know, as we get ready for the summer, one of the things that folks are getting able to do is to gather. And I'm watching families of mine decide, you know what, who's got the best house? We, who's got the best backyard? We're going to make that backyard the gathering spot. That way we, we're not exposed. Some of it's coping, you know, not trying to go into other spaces. But then also, how do we build up in one place? And then how do we travel and make that, and make that move to others? That is a powerful, powerful mm-hmm. um, bit of advice that, Many I'm texting my auntie right now. <laughs> right, <laughs> auntie, what's up with this life insurance? Yeah, because we need it. It's 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 a way for us to leverage wealth, mm. and you know because we all gotta die. I'll tell you the story how I how I figured that out. I had a client because you know I'm a wealth advisor. I had a client pass away, and his two sons came in there, and you know they were a little distraught, but they said this has been happening in our family for four generations. What we do is when somebody dies. They got big life insurance. And so the guy had $3 million in life insurance and it went into the family trust. The family trust had already had 12 or $13 million in it. And they used it to start businesses. If you went to college, if you got married. And I said, I can do that with my family on a smaller scale. So just learning them tricks that nobody will ever teach us on mm. how to do that. So I seen how they did that for their family. And then they broke it down. Like the, the, the trust will distribute money when you're 30, when you're 40. And then when you get 55, whoever's the patriarch of the family has full access to it. Cause they figure by the time you're 55, you don't went through divorces. You got enough sense to really <laughs> handle the money. That, you, you know, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say really quick. I learned uh, working with this one organization that had got an influx of donations, like in the millions. And by putting it in a a high um, interest paying credit union, I was blown away by the amount of money that $3 million could make each month just in interest. Mm. And so when you start having that type of money sitting in the bank, you could start to scale your life to what you're making on interest every month. Of course. Of course. I mean, you see it. This is why, like you see... um, like Mark Cuban said, it's easier for a person with a hundred million to make a hundred and ten million than it is for a person who has a hundred dollars to make a hundred and ten dollars. Because if they have that kind of capital and it's able to sit, it can just make money by lending it to the government and buying government bonds. That's it. You can get four or five percent on that. Go ahead, Anthony. My apologies. No, 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 no. I'm 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 what you're seeing is my reaction to the beautiful simplicity of of what you're bringing to the table. You know, I know it takes work and it takes some learning, but um, 
I mean, that's that's huge. I I can imagine that there are families going to going to be able to to use that as a way to move forward. And you've got to figure out how to navigate it because we got to also keep mm-hmm. in mind our family relationships. But that life insurance piece alone, how many uh, many folks, you know, we we are overrepresented in folks who get sick and can't pay health bills, which kills us financially. Same thing happens with death and having and the funeral services and the ways that families have to scrape together. I'm tired of seeing GoFundMe's every time somebody dies in a community mm-hmm. because there's not something there that can cover that. So that there, there, these are, are are some really important ways to start to build that together. And so, um, you know, we're running out of time. We never have enough time. Um, but but I got so many more questions. Where can I go if I want to get in touch with 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 PJ? If I want to get in touch with 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 you know a place to continue to take these ideas or to put them into fruition? Where would you suggest I go? Well, number one, they can reach out to me on Instagram. So my Instagram right. is Mister PJ Hill, and what I do, I'm actually about to come out with a financial course just teaching the basics about finance because that's what people need. And then uh, another thing that I'm gonna teach is credit. That is the number one thing like that our people really don't learn about and we get screwed really fast. So I'm going to just tell you what I do and this can work for any family. So I got good credit, been been taking care of it, worked my way now to 800. But I remember when I was my second year after playing professional, I walked into a car dealership and I didn't have uh no credit. I went in there like, yeah, I want to get a car. I'm making good money. You know what I'm saying? They're like, yeah, denied. You don't have no credit. I said, what is credit? Nobody ever taught me about it. So I had to start with a secure card, buying gas every month, paying it off every month, using like a chart card and slowly built it up. So now I have like an 812 or 813. So what I have done, I got nine brothers and sisters, all of them who are over 13, including my daughter. I have put them on as an authorized user on my American Express. And then I allow them to stay on there. I'm not going to give them the card because they'll send them a card, but you can keep that. <laughs> you keep them on there, but their credit reflects yours. So now one of my sisters is graduating you know, college this year, and she's got a 770 credit score. So now she's good enough to go get an apartment and don't need a co-signer. Mm. She can go get a small car if she's going to go into law enforcement or whatever she decides to do. She has enough credit to start these things to be self-sustaining. So that's another thing that people can do. Just add your family members on as authorized user. Don't allow them to spend, but just pay it off every month and you will build their credit because it will reflect yours. Well, I appreciate that. You know, we always wrap up our show um, by checking in with everybody to say, how are you being you in this moment? And so as we make catalog of this moment throughout our history and archives, we need to check in with you, Brother PJ Hill. How are you being you in this moment? Um, I'm being me by just doing my skill set that I was blessed with to serve my community, which is being a bridge builder because I work in corporate America and I'm, I'm from the community. So I can be that bridge between, um, the businesses in the community and then being a servant leader, using my gifts to serve people. Appreciate you. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? You know, by working hard and trying to break these generational curses. Uh, people always ask me that, uh, you know, how do you do all, all of these things? You're everywhere. You're always covering something. But I mean, really, the motivation to break generational curses is behind that. The, the motivation of having 
uh, something to leave my children is is why I, I work as hard as I do. So, hey, I'm still on the grind, um, working around the clock and, and trying to follow all of the developments um, and not just the Chauvin trial, but the other three and the DOJ investigation. So just continuing to 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 do what I do best. That's what's up. You know, as for me, I'm sitting up under the tutelage of elders. That has been something that this past week has been just real prescient. Um, I had an elder who's joined my uh, consulting firm, um, who I've looked up to for a while, and now as they have retired, they're there. I get to play with them. <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, shout out to Miss Tanae Wells, who's one of my coaches. Um, you know, in the purple spot, um, but then also just being able to absorb wisdom, um, to to fish with them, to sit with them, to 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 just be in spaces where I can just sit and remind and be reminded of the wisdom that they carry is definitely putting me in a good spot right now. So that's how I'm being my best me in this current moment. Um, well, this has been another episode of Bearing Witness. And of course, we got to close in the way that we always close. So I'm going to kick it over to our independent journalist and and, and Black press superstar, Miss Georgia Fort. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>